You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Great to be with you all today. Welcome everybody online. I uh, don't know if you know this name, but she's a human rights activist and a longtime outspoken atheist. Her name is Ayan Hersi Ali, and she wrote a memoir back in 2006, I'm sure you all read it, called Infidel. It talked about her move out of Islam and into atheism, and for years she became part of a group of leaders really called the New Atheist. It was a group of people which included names like Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, you may know those names, and she was a part of that group. But last month though, she made headlines, sort of shocked the world, when she revealed she had converted to the Christian faith. She become a Christian, and she wrote an essay about it called Why I Am Now a Christian. And later on, after we're all done, not now, am I making myself clear? You should go read that. <laughs> you should go read it. You can check it out online. It's a rebuke to Bertrand Russell's very famous 1927 essay called Why I Am an Atheist. And she said in the article that she's realized that life is, using her words, unendurable, and very nearly self-destructive without something to fill the God hole. Again, sort of channeling Blaise Pascal there. She said she realized that her emptiness couldn't be filled with a jumble of irrational, quasi-religious dogma. Concluded like this. I've recognized in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. Fortunately, there is no need to look for some new age concoction of medication and mindfulness. Christianity has it all. It's well said, and of course, I think she's right, and she is brilliant, but did you notice what she pointed to deep down as the spark, the reason, the pathway that led her out of atheism and into Christian faith? She said atheism, here it is, couldn't fulfill her deepest longings. She said she had an inner emptiness that couldn't be filled, not just without God in specific, because she had been a Muslim, right? But that couldn't be filled without Jesus Christ in specific. And long before, long before she ever, Ali ever talked about how her deepest longings led her to Christ, the poets of the Hebrew scripture said, that's who Jesus was going to be. They wrote about how God would one day send someone to meet us in our longings, to fill us in our inner emptiness, and even to put the whole world right in. One poet who talked about it, in particular, his name was Isaiah, both a prophet and a poet. He wrote a lot about this person in a series of writings called the Servant Songs. The Servant's on the songs of the servant. And they're all about a mysterious figure called the servant. And much later, when Jesus Christ came into the world, the first Christian said, that's him. He's the servant. That's who Jesus is. He is the servant of Isaiah. So let's see today why this person Isaiah wrote about is the same person that a Muslim turned atheist, turned Christian could say, he met me there. He met me in my longings. And I think, by the way, this is something important to consider and to look at about a faith because faith doesn't just need to be intellectually credible. 
it also needs to be existentially satisfying as well. So let's see today why someone like Ali, maybe you, I would, would say Jesus is that kind of person. Let's see how the servant meets us in three unique human longings here. Isaiah is going to outline these for us. Meets us in our longings for, number one, for a counter-cultural leader, a different kind of leader. Number two, for a counter-intuitive healer. And finally, in our longing for a cosmic hope. So three longings here. Isaiah says the servant is going to meet us in. Let's begin these in number, and see, number one, that the servant is... First of all, a counter-cultural leader will begin here in Isaiah 42.1. God says through Isaiah, here we go, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Okay, so let's look first of all at who this servant's supposed to be. He's someone who's supposed to bring justice to the whole world. It says all the nation, see, justice bringing was the role of a king, especially in the Jewish tradition. Only this king, Isaiah is going to go on to say, brings about justice in a countercultural kind of way. Look at verse 2. It says, though he brings justice, he won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Huh. J.A. Motyer was an Irish Bible scholar, and he looked at sort of the juxtaposition, the mystery of those two thoughts put together, and he wrote this. He said, the servant is not self-assertive. Probably the three verbs here are cumulative, stressing his quiet, unaggressive demeanor. But shout could suggest he is not out to startle. Cry out means he's, the servant's not out to dominate or shout others down. Raise his voice means he's not out to advertise himself. Well, okay. What's that? The servant is the kind of leader who's not going to shout others down, who doesn't self-aggrandize, doesn't self-promote, isn't into personal branding. What does this mean? It means he's not just a king, but he's a servant king, a servant leader. He's a king who, while he possesses all power, isn't out to get more power, but to give power away, even to the point that a later servant song sings, the servant will suffer, be tortured, and die. And this is so unexpected of a, of a powerful kind of leader, so radical a notion as to what leadership is. But a lot of people have said over time, this passage and these songs, they can't possibly be talking about a single individual. They can't be talking about a, a one person alone. No, instead, uh, people have said they're talking about like a corporate servant, like a, a community which suffers on behalf of the world, not an individual. Oh, but to put it kindly, if you've heard that, they're wrong. <laughs> because if you read the text carefully, you'll notice, no, it's actually an individual servant who suffers and who brings the people back to God, not a group of people. And this text instead, no, it's singing about a singular king, a person with all power, but who becomes lowly in order to win the people's hearts and trust back to God. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he talked about this, did a little thought experiment. He wrote a parable called The King and the Maiden. The King and the Maiden. And The King and the Maiden is all about the upside down way that the servant wants to come into your life, into mine. He wrote this. He said, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. This king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was humbled by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? 
In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and her body with royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly, would she be happy? At his side, how could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving white banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. And of course, he's speaking about the way God wants to relate to us. And so at the end of Kierkegaard's parable, the king clothes himself as a beggar, puts on an old cloak and knocks on the maiden's door as an equal. See, the king, in other words, has renounced his throne to win her hand. He's renounced his throne to win her hand. Isaiah says that is what God's servant will do. This servant is the king who will renounce his throne to win your heart and to win your hand. Have you ever seen a leader like that, by the way? You ever seen a leader like that? Would you say, would you say that that type of leadership, servant leadership, is more present or more absent in the world today? (laughs) In human history, in your own company, in your own business, with your own boss, in your own life, in your own leadership, if you're a leader, would you say leadership like God's servant leadership dominates our political discourse Hmm? and is common among our political candidates? Let me tell you this, ask you this rhetorical question. If humble leadership like this, leadership like the servants is what saves our souls, how can leadership unlike this save our nation, save a country? Do you see why this is countercultural? It's just so rare. Jesus himself said this to prove the point. You know that the rulers of the fill-in-the-blank party, in this case Gentiles, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your, come on, say it, servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, can we just for a moment worship, give praise to our countercultural king? He is the leader we all long for. But the servant is not only just a kind of a countercultural leader. Number two, the servant is number two. Also, Isaiah goes on to say, he's a counterintuitive kind of healer. Let me try to show you what I mean. Let's keep moving in the passage to set up the next verse, verse three. Let me take a moment to ask this question. Here we go. All right, you look out at the world, you look out at problems, you look out at all the stuff in our city, nation, your own life and family. To fix the world, to fix your home, to fix our country, what should you focus on? What should Mosaic Church be focused on in our city? Should we focus, on one hand, should we focus on helping and fixing broken individuals? Or should we give our attention to and focus on addressing broken systems? Should we focus on individuals or focus on broken systems? And your answer to that question probably reveals how you vote. (laughs) It reveals how you vote. American conservatives tend to emphasize the importance of individuals. American liberals tend to emphasize the importance of systems. But what does the servant care about? What will the servant come to heal? Look at verse 3. It says, a bruised reed 
he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. This is talking about his focus and care for individuals. Let me begin try to show you what I mean. This word here for bruising, this is describing a blow that leaves you bleeding below the surface. Uh, in other words, this is a, a pain others can't detect. It's a, it's a wound you carry others can't see. Something that bends you to the breaking point. How many of you would say, Morgan, I'm carrying something like that in my life today. Yeah, I'm carrying a bruise or a blow from this past year. No one else can see but me. That's you, I want to tell you. The servant sees it. The bruised reed, he won't break. Isaiah says we all long for someone to come into our lives and carry the pain, fix the wound. And this smoldering wick or flax, to use the old word, describes a person who's like a like a candle with a, a wick that's almost burned down. But this is a, this saying that the servant won't blow out the candle, but instead fan it back into flame. Now you put these together, and what you have described is the kind of person who can give an expert, skilled care for the soul and mend it in only a way that a skilled and loving physician camp. A man by the name of Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs was an old Puritan preacher, and he wrote a, a famous book about Isaiah 42. It's still around today. Sibbs' book is called A Bruised Reed, again, based on Isaiah 42, and in it he says this, talking about how God works with us. He said, physicians, though they put their patients too much pain, some of you are like, yeah, I've been there, <laughs> will not destroy their nature, but will raise it up by degrees. Surgeons will pierce and cut, but not mutilate. A mother who has a sick and sufferable child will not cast it away. And shall there be more mercy in the stream, that's us, than there is in the spring, that's God. Shall we think there is more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the feeling of mercy in us? There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Don't you love it? I love it. The point is he's saying Jesus cares so much about hurting even sinning people, about individuals, about you today. Don't you long for someone to carry your bruise? Yeah, I do. That's who the servant is. Why does this matter? Let me give you one implication real quick. This shows us, I think, for our church that the gospel, the gospel ought to shape this church, any church, Mosaic church, of course, for having a preference for the poor, for the poor. Not just for the ones on top, but maybe even for the ones on the bottom. Not just for the spiritually lost, yes, but also for the economically challenged. And that's why, in a sense, here's the application. I'm going to preach it to you real good. As long as there is one lost person in our city, we haven't preached enough. We haven't preached Jesus enough. As long as there's one hungry person in our city, we haven't fed enough. And as long as there is one hurting person in our city, we haven't loved enough. The servant came to heal people, individuals, and he cares about you. But as much as that is true, that's not the only thing the servant has come to heal. Because Isaiah sings four times in three verses, so you won't miss it, about something else. One word, it's the word justice. Yeah, justice, this of course is the Hebrew word mishpat, and mishpat, you may know, means something in specific. But it does not mean what most Americans think it means, especially when it comes to the Bible and justice. If, uh, if you've seen the movie, or, or, or better yet, you've read the book by William Golding called The Princess Bride, uh, you'll know that over and over, there's this one character in the movie and book who uses the word inconceivable 
inconceivable. Yes, you've seen this. A quick illustration. This character uses this word inconceivable over and over and over to describe like everything that happens to him. And finally, one of his friends gets so annoyed, he says out, famously calls out, he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and I think we Americans do that with this word justice. We think it means something more like rectifying justice, which means to make a wrong thing right. And of course, that's good. Or to punish evildoers. That's good. Rectifying justice, we think it looks like putting someone in prison for a crime committed. That can be good. But that's not the only way the Bible speaks about justice. Oh no, so often justice and this word righteousness are linked over and over again. Justice and righteousness, that's also the word sadak. Sadak means right actions. And together they paint a picture of a third Hebrew word, which some of you may know, shalom. Shalom, which means peace, or a little more eloquently, the way things ought to be. So here is Morgan's version. I'm going to put a little spiritual math formula together for you. For what brings justice and what justice brings. Here it is. Right actions upstream, Sadak, that means you doing what you ought to be doing, plus right actions downstream, fixing the stuff when humans don't, equals the way things ought to be. Shalom. And four times, Isaiah says, the servant comes to heal not only individual victims of injustice, but he's got a passion to heal the justice system. The servant longs to make things like, to quote, it's a wonderful life, you've seen the movie, like Bedford Falls, yes, with a wonderful old, beautiful old bank and loan, right? Not, you know, evil old Potterville with the rundown houses. Seems like I haven't seen that. Okay, Gen Xers, here we go. This one's for you. Servant longs to make the world, make the world like Marty McFly's version of Hill Valley, not evil Biff's. Thank you. Back to the future too, yeah. But when as he came, the servant did to heal the whole world, Hill Valley made right. Bedford Falls made, right? He doesn't just lean one way to use our terminology, left or right. He cares about the individual downstream, the Bruce Reed. And he cares about the system upstream, justice. How can we, the church of Jesus, reflect both? story here. A hundred years ago, a woman by the name of Dr. Kate Bushnell uh, was a devout Christian. She was actually a medical doctor, a physician, and an evangelist with a burning passion to lead other people to Christ. And her life changed when she heard about girls being forced into prostitution in some logging towns in Wisconsin and Michigan. And what she found was this. When these girls tried to escape this life and they asked the police for help, she ran into what John Wesley described as a complicated wickedness. She found, for example, many times the local law enforcement simply returned the runaways to the brothels. They didn't help. She found the owners and the patrons of those establishments exercised enough political power to avoid having the law come down on them. She found that local doctors supported the brothel's existence because the frequent examination of the women provided an additional source of income for the doctors. And she found that local businessmen liked the brothels because they provided a boost to the local economy. What could be wrong with that, right? 
But no one, no one would go in to investigate. So she decided she was going to have to do it herself as a doctor, as a Christian, as a woman, facing incredible danger like an undercover detective. She went into scores of brothels and interviewed hundreds of women personally about what their lives were like. And she finally put together her findings and reported them at a Christian women's conference in Chicago. That was the only group that would listen to her. Of course, the state of Wisconsin vehemently denied her findings. It couldn't be going on here, right? And the state inspector himself attempted to discredit her and accusing her of unchastity because she had gone into the brothels. Yeah. And when she appeared before the Wisconsin state legislature to testify, she had to be escorted by police because of threats to her person. But standing that day before a hostile assembly, she said she felt overwhelmed as the only woman in the whole room testifying about other women. Some of you women have been there, haven't you? But being a woman of prayer says she lifted her heart to God. This is from her biography. This is what she said. Whereupon the door opened quietly and about 50 ladies of the highest social position at the state capitol filed in and stood all about me. There were no seats for them. They stood all the time I talked and I had plenty of courage as I realized how good God was to send them. And despite the attacks on Dr. Bushnell that has made it into the papers, the whole country was agitated by the disclosures and her findings, of course, were confirmed by private and public investigators. The result of her work was a passage in the Wisconsin state legislature called, appropriately, the Kate Bushnell Bill. Yeah, an outlawed forced prostitution. Later on, and she, went, and she did the same thing in China and in India and worked on translating the Bible into Chinese. Oh my goodness. She was like the servant. Yeah. See, she brought healing to individuals affected by the world and she dealt with the brokenness of systems. And do you know why she did this? Here's why. It wasn't because she just had like, you know, Hirsi Ali said, some have a jumble of irrational, quasi-religious dogma, like a nice new agey feeling. No, Kate Bushnell found there was someone, a person who loved people even more than she did and someone who loved justice, was passionate about putting things right even more than she did. And she found a God who met her in her longings for both love and justice and it changed her life and the world. See, the Christian faith is is both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. The servant meets us in our longings for the leader that we need, the healer that we need. And finally, number three, in our longings for an ultimate cosmic hope. A little Bible study for this point. One of the themes introduced here in this servant song carried throughout the rest of the songs is this theme of bruising you just heard a bit about. Some of you may know the verse Isaiah 53, 5, right? Super famous verse. Uh, the servant will be bruised for our iniquities. You know this, yes? And this passage here in Isaiah 42 talks about bruising one more time, though you can't quite pick up on it. And here's why. Verse 4 says this, In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter, hang on to that word, or be discouraged Till he establishes justice on earth. Again, you don't see it in the translation, but the word falter here is the same word as bruise in Hebrew. So quite literally, you've got to catch this. This is the point. Isaiah is saying the servant will not be bruised. He won't be hurt until 
the moment he brings about justice on the earth. At the very moment the servant who rules and who loves and who heals brings about justice, at that moment, he'll be bruised. Now, what in the world is this talking about? And the answer is, to quote another Princess Bride reference, go back to the beginning. Back to the beginning, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, they broke God's heart, they broke the world, and God came to them in the garden. And he gave them, yes, a list of lengthy consequences, but he also gave them a seed of hope. And I use that term very purposely, a seed of hope, because one verse, Genesis 3.15, carries in it what theologians call the proto-evangelium, the early seed, the first seed, the first gospel message ever in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. And God says that in that verse, he says, one day a descendant of evil come, a child will be born into the world. And God speaks now in the garden to the serpent who represents sin and evil. And God says this, I will put enmity, don't you, don't you love that God cares about evil? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Humans and evil will struggle between your seed and her seed. God says, he, the child, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, this is kind of weird. You're like, what's the head, heel, bit? Why the heel? That's kind of weird. Well, this may seem strange until you think about maybe how like you might go about killing a snake that got into your house. If it comes to uh, the snake or your kids, parents, what are you going to do? Some of you are like, well, don't make me choose. <laughs> but if it was, again, you coming in between a, a snake and your kids and you were a person without a weapon, what would you have to do to end the snake's life? You'd have to stomp on it. And at the place where you ended the snake's existence, you would yourself, of course, would become Vulnerable, And God says, in the same way, one day, a vulnerable child of Eve will be born and deal a death blow to evil. But at the moment he does that, he himself will receive the blow. And as he kills you, God's saying, Satan, evil and justice, he himself will die. And that's what the servant came to do and to be, Isaiah says, the servant won't falter. He won't die. He'll be strong. Until the moment the death blow comes and justice for the world is done. So, of course, where and when would that be as Christians we know? At Christmas, Jesus was born. He became vulnerable. Became even more vulnerable as he stretched himself out on a Roman cross to die. and would pay on that cross for all our injustices, for the lack of Sadak, the misplaced mishpat, right? So that evil, while present in the world, no longer had to reign over humans. The head of it is now crushed. This means the present darkness that you feel, that you still see in the world, that we all experience, it means while it's real and maybe powerful, it's like a, a dying snake. It's thrashing around. Its nerve endings are still whipping it. It's in a death spiral. It can do terrible things, whip you, slice you fang you a bit but it's on its way out because the cosmic hope promised thousands of years ago Genesis 3 Jesus has now become that the hope of all the world was born at Christmas to bring the people back to God he took the poison so that it consumes him and not us and one day he's promised to return to end all evil now don't you dream of long for a world where that'll come to pass. Yes. I do. 
Don't you long for yourself to be fixed? (laughs) All the stuff on the inside to be fixed and redeemed. Oh, did you know this cosmic hope can come into your life and make the world like that and you like that bit by bit by bit. The cosmic hope can. How? Last thought. At the baptism of all places of Jesus, after his birth, before his crucifixion, when Jesus came up out of the water, eyewitnesses who were there claimed they heard a voice. This wasn't like an everyday deal. It's supposed to be a unique moment. And do you know what this voice from heaven said? It's the voice of God the Father. And quoted a Bible verse to tell Jesus how much he loved him. And he said about Jesus, this is my beloved son. Wait for it. In him I am well pleased. He quoted Isaiah 42.1. God the Father sang this song over his son, the servant, Jesus. And now the miraculous thing about what it means to be a Christian. Christian faith has always said. What it means to be a Christian is you can have this voice in your life. Did you know that? You can have this voice day by day, bit by bit. Because of Jesus, not because of you. The gospel is because of Jesus. You can have the voice of the Father in your life meeting you in your long, deepest longing to be affirmed. And I think maybe even more than anything, we all long for that. Let's go hear that voice if we can right now. Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name for this passage, what it points us to. It points us to those, I think the lyrics of that hymn, dear desire of every nation and joy of every longing heart. I'm praying you'd meet us today in our longings. Lord, for every person in here, longing for love, longing for justice, longing to be made right and fixed and whole and healed. I thank you for meeting us in that place. You're the one who's brought that in part and the one who'll bring it in full. Because of your sinless life and resurrection, we can trust you. It's not just truth, but it's meaningful. Lord, I'm praying we would surrender those areas, those areas of longing to you today, right now. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, and as a result, we would, we would hear that word. Those who trust Jesus, we are beloved children. Somehow, with us, you're well pleased. I pray this changes us and shapes us and sets us free. This Christmas, in Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Amen, Pastor Barnes. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.